a lot of fiction, fantasy especially, absolutely love siege battles. They're especially beloved in visual mediums like TV shows, movies, and video games. And most of this media loves to show the big bombastic moment where the defender finally repels the attackers and routes or slaughters them, or when the totally heroic attackers finally break through the walls and claim the castle. But is that really accurate? And does the accuracy matter? And, I mean, do you even need to include them at all? All on this episode of Why Are You Talking About This? Nerd. Hello everyone, and welcome to Waytad Nerd. Uh, today I will be your nerdy medievalist guide through the surprisingly violent world of sieges. And for once, this is a topic I have some specialty in. And as always, thank you for listening to the show. It means the world to me to have you listening, even if you're only listening because you're trying to write a D&D session and no one else is talking about sieges for some reason. Except for that one Reddit post that has, like, one comment and it's disagreeing with the post. But, as always, make sure to download, stream, share, whatever else it is you can do to spread the show and make my dopamine numbers go up. Also, make sure to send in emails for episode 20, which is coming up pretty damn fast. Uh, send in stuff I got wrong, some extra details, and anything else you want to say to make it into an episode. Um, also, I'm considering doing more stuff for the show after episode 20, but I'm not really sure what, so also send that in. Alright, on to the show. Siegecraft, today's topic, and uh... Look, as much as a medievalist as I am, it didn't really click with me how brutal this shit was. And let's start with a good old classic definition. So a siege is a military operation or blockade in which one side occupies a building, town, or fortification, and the other side surrounds the structure to cut off supplies and compel surrender without attacking. And by and large, these happen because these fortified positions are meant to slow down attackers and just generally ruin their day. So, when you come across your enemy huddled inside one of these, to make sure they don't come out and fuck you up after you leave, you need to attack it. But again, since it's purpose-built to stop you, the only method you have is to force the defenders to come out and meet you in the open. And how you do that? Cut off their supply lines and wait. Eventually, they'll come out or surrender, because the other option is starve to death. Of course, though, sometimes you run out of time and you need to just attack them, which fucking sucks, and we'll get to that. But with all that, let's look at how sieges are handled in fiction. So, firstly, you can best describe siege warfare in fiction as siege battles, uh, with the enemy sitting in a very pretty-looking tent city in the middle distance or just charging the walls in an endless, mindless wave. And these are usually resolved pretty quickly, especially in movies and TV, which makes sense given that they only have a limited amount of time and can't really make it dramatic and dynamic on camera while still being accurate without wasting weeks of shooting. Which, if you know, uh, if you know filmmaking, uh, using weeks to shoot useless footage is a huge waste of money and time especially in an industry where you never have enough time to film what you need to film. 
Secondly, the defenders either form up outside of the walls, you know, like that one episode of Game of Thrones everyone's angry at, including me, or just kind of huddle up inside the walls waiting for the attackers to come hit them. And on the attacking side, they usually just have plenty of time to sit around and wait until they're feeling in the right mood to come and attack. Next is the war machines. Lines of towers, battering rams, and artillery just absolutely comestering the city. Now this makes a very dynamic opening shot and is also very exciting to see. The fourth, most of the fighting is over the wall, and once it's taken, that's practically the end of the fight. Once there's a breach, that's usually the end of it too. And speaking of breaches, that's another thing that happens. Wall breaches are a massive deal and can make or break the entire siege and turn into a land battle in the time that it takes to change camera angles. And finally, these battles are usually pretty dynamic and also fairly quick. And obviously, this isn't the case for every single piece of fiction. Rather, this is just generally how fantasy does it. And now we're going to go over to looking at the reality of it and vaguely matching up the, uh, the points. So, first, tents weren't fucking cheap. In fact, the materials required were both expensive and also surprisingly heavy, meaning most people weren't going to be carrying tents around. Instead, most soldiers would live in rapidly constructed huts or literal holes in the ground or burrows, which sounds as shitty as it was. Also, with the battle tactic of just sending endless waves, uh, things with a self-preservation instinct will let a commander just send them mindlessly into a stone wall until something happens. Because you know that's fucking stupid. And also, a commander that chooses to do this with their troops is a big old dummy and doesn't deserve their rank. No matter how many soldiers you send out, the wall isn't going to collapse from smashing their faces into it. And yes, I know you fucking well actually, motherfuckers, eventually it will, because every impact will remove micro-inches from it, but I'm sure micro-inches is a sensitive subject for you, so we're not going to talk about that. Anyways, uh, secondly, defenders just don't sit in the walls. They usually had counterattacks and pretty consistently lay down long-range firepower with artillery, and also bows and guns if the attacker was dumb enough to set up close enough to be in range of those. And also, think, if the enemy is set up outside the walls and you're confident you could win, why would you wait inside? Which is why a sortie is. When the defenders would come outside in quick hit-and-run raids with cavalry or light infantry, or even try to repel attackers with dedicated attacks. On top of this, it wasn't out of the question to have soldiers essentially do a 9-to-5 shift of nothing but shooting at the enemy camp to keep them stressed out. And on the attacking side, you weren't just sitting around waiting for something to happen, because there's chores to do, fortifications to build, food to find, water to collect, watch shifts to do, which were usually like 8 to 10 hours of just standing there doing nothing. You'd need to stay in formation sometimes, just in case the enemy sorted out, so that some amount of the army wasn't caught with their dick and balls out and ready for a swift kick from pointy steel sabatons. You could also be tasked with missions like strafing runs on the enemy walls with your bow, or raiding nearby settlements and villages for supplies, or scouting out for enemy relieving forces or sortieing forces trying to raid your supply lines. So, you know, you didn't really have much time off, and most of your on-time was fighting or waiting for a fight in some capacity. Third, the siege weapons. So they were actually pretty small and rare. Because think about the logistics of something like a 40-foot siege tower. You, right now, with no carpentry experience, gather together 20 other random dudes from your bumblefuck town that you come from, and go build a 40-foot-tall wooden tower that rolls, and also will survive more than a single hit from any weapon, and also can support the weight of all 20 of you wearing armor and carrying weapons. Yeah, I thought so. And these logistical concerns played across all siege weaponry. Siege towers were very, very rare, even in long sieges, and weren't even wheeled up to the wall most of the time. Battering rams were most commonly handheld, and the big ones you see with, like, a full roof and shit were really rare to actually see on the battlefield. 
most common siege weapons would be ladders and digging tools to get under the wall instead of going through or over it. And speaking of walls, most of the initial fighting was, sure, around the walls, but once they were taken, the defenders weren't shit out of luck. Why? Because congrats, cockbag. Now you're on top of a narrow stone platform 35 fucking feet in the air. Where are you going to go now? Back down the ladder? Are you going to try to get in that tower with a single choke point next to you? Or try to fight down the stairs with people trying to fucking murder you at the bottom? And even if the attackers overwhelm the defenders at the walls, most cities and fortresses have fallback points, secondary walls, a keep, and also a fuck ton of buildings to hold up in and be a problem. The fighting isn't done if the defenders won't surrender, it just becomes 10 million times more chaotic and confusing. And again, speaking of walls, breaches didn't ever really happen eh, very often in reality, and when they did, they rarely ended the battle. Why? Well, because yes, you made another entrance. Good job. But what's the either side of the entrance? Oh, stone walls? Yeah, you just made another choke point. And on top of that, this is a video game that's designed to be fun and also something you can reasonably do in one sitting and also something that will load on a uh, gaming computer. So the rubble doesn't despawn. Meaning now you need to either remove the rubble because that's a fucking barrier or scramble over a massive hill of loose stone to fight motherfuckers on the other side that want to shove your asshole out of your mouth the long way around. Now, also, these things weren't dynamic. Dramatic and chaotic? Yes. Dynamic and fast? No. Sieges could take anywhere between weeks for ill-prepared places to years for very well-prepared fortresses. And sure, there'd be a lot of casualties from either side, but this was rarely due to a direct assault. Rather, it would be disease, starvation, and environmental hazards. For the attackers, they were probably in a new area of the world and knew next to nothing about the plants, animals, and terrain, so they'd be taking casualties from those while also not being able to find food easily to feed an entire fucking army. Because, uh, surprise, surprise, most places in the world don't have enough uh, plants and animals that are edible within them to feed, like, 20,000 tightly packed people. And, also, they were exposed to new diseases and lived in very close proximity, which is a bad combination. And the defenders were forced to live like sardines, so disease spread rapidly through them as well. Their buildings were getting rained on by artillery, so they'd collapse or catch fire. Shut up, phone. And they probably didn't have food coming in, so eventually people would start starving. So the entire thing was a shitty, long, stressful, chaotic war of attrition for both sides, where even if you win, the casualties you've taken might make the entire thing pointless. Which leads to the last point. Sieges didn't have to, or even in most cases historically, end in victory for either side. Or even an actual battle. Instead, most of the time, something would break the siege before a battle could happen. Like the attackers get ambushed, or, you know, seeing a relief force uh, taking too many losses, or from losing cohesion, or this, or this siege just costs way too much fucking money, or the war's done and they just got word of it. Or, you know, the defenders look outside and realize they couldn't win and instead of choosing to throw their lives away and wait to starve to death, shit their brains out to death, or getting stabbed to death, they just decide to surrender and most likely live. I, it's basically a game of chicken where the first to decide isn't worth it loses. And in the aftermath, there isn't necessarily a massacre, rape, pillage, and loot like seen in stuff like Game of Thrones nearly as often as you think. Because keep in mind, while that did happen, people still have morals and ethics, and people in the Middle Ages were still human beings. So if like 95% of people in the modern day wouldn't commit a massacre and rape because they won a battle just because of personal ethics, you gotta keep in mind that, uh, that's probably the case back then, too. And if the attackers weren't going to occupy and were just going to raise or sack the place and move on, 
most of the looting was a mad dash of bust down the door, punch grandma in the face, and steal a comically large chest of money, and then burn down the house after you. No. Usually you'd grab what you could carry and what you needed. Like, ugh. Fuck me, I haven't eaten in two days, and we finally got into the city, so... I guess I'll take these four loaves of bread and this dude's bottle of wine. I'm kind of thirsty, too. And as you're walking, realize, ah, fuck, my shoe has a hole in it. I guess I'll uh, grab some shoes. And also, you know, maybe some money and shit you can sell, because you're not getting really paid very well otherwise. Now, is this a good thing to do? No. Obviously. Stealing is wrong. Especially stealing from people that you just motherfucking clobbered. But real siege resolutions very rarely ended in days or weeks of absolute barbaric depravity and were usually instead quick snatch and grabs or settling in to rally and regroup. And also, most of the time you didn't, like, burn down the entire city if you were planning to occupy it because you need those fucking buildings. And also, if you're going to just loot it instead of raising it, it's a lot better to just keep the buildings there because, you know, a fire is hard to get away from. So, with that, let's talk actual siege tactics. And, yes, I know most of this episode's going to be on the realistic side of it, but you know how they do it in fiction. There's not a lot of need to, <laughs> to, to get into that. Uh, but we're going to begin with the attackers. So, the first thing you do, besides setting camp, is to rain holy motherfucking hellfire with artillery. Now, I did just say knocking down the walls doesn't help much, so why am I saying this? Well, because the purpose isn't to tear up the hard defense points like walls, it's to soften up the enemy and drain their will to fight. And what do you aim for? Wooden walls and breastworks. And those aren't, like, things to protect your titties. Those are, like, uh, like added wooden structures to make the walls come up to your chest. Uh, castle crenulations, the things people duck behind. Uh, walkways, towers, gatehouses, archery platforms, defensive artillery, and whatever's behind the wall itself. Basically just fuck their shit up like the barber you went to when you were at your most self-conscious in high school. Okay, so let's say you're blasting their booty holes with your uh, trebuchets and cannons, and they still haven't given up. What now? Well, now you build siege engines. So let's begin with battering rams. These are basically just big, heavy, fuck-off pieces of wood or metal or whatever else meant to blast through the gates like I plow through your waifu. Got him. And these come in a lot of varieties, with small gates and even sometimes doors requiring nothing more than a handheld ram with maybe 5 to 12 of your least favorite friends running directly into the goddamn door and hopefully busting it down animal style before you get shot to hell. And for big boy gates, like ones you can't touch the top of to form your masculinity, and also your top status when you and your homies have a cocks... I almost said cocks on. <laughs> I definitely cocks on. A socks on orgy, you'll need something called a cat. Which are I mean, just really big carriages that carry your battergram for you because these ones are huge as hell. And these are more common to see in bigger sieges and would also be used for other things like protecting underminers, moat fillers, and people clearing rubble. And while it's not advised, you could also put like a chisel head on your ram to recreate your favorite NTR hentai on the stone, but this isn't advised because of the whole, you know, rubble thing. Especially because a cat is not going to withstand the force of an entire fucking wall caving in on it. Uh, also, the other thing with rams is that they didn't usually have the force to blow the doors open. And this isn't saying the rams suck donkey ding-dongs. Instead, it's because the doors used on castles were pretty fucking good. I mean, think. You don't want some doofus with a horse, a will, and a way, and a complete lack of self-awareness to Kool-Aid man his way inside. So usually, what would happen is the ram would bash open a section of the door, or crack it apart enough to let the people using it to then chop through it with axes, or literally pull sections out of it with their hands until someone could get the lock open or shove the door through. Yeah, terrifying to be involved on any 
side of the door. Also, we have undermining. Basically, that by digging underneath the walls and putting up some pretty shitty support struts, struts, not sluts, uh, you can destabilize the entire structure by either catching those struts on fire or wailing on that section of wall until it collapses because you had Gary, a double cross-eyed carpenter that doesn't know the difference between a saw and two hammers tied together, to build the tunnel support struts. You could also use this to plant explosives, poison drinking water if their drinking water runs underneath the wall, uh, waterlog the entire wall segment by letting filthy fucking moat water leak in, create a new way into the castle, or even just make them think you're doing any of that which then forces them to abandon that section of wall, or try and fight back, or risk maybe falling to their death because they wisely decided not to hire Gary, and you did. Now, we have siege towers, which were also called belfries, which I think is a much cooler name. So these towers, unlike how they're used in the modern-day video games, like Total War, or in other video games, or how they get used in movies, weren't really meant to deploy troops to the walls. Like, you could, and they were sometimes used for that, but these things were fat, slow, expensive pieces of utter bullshit, and it wasn't worth the investment. So, what did they do instead? They were meant to be mobile archery platforms, built higher than the enemy's wall to get the height advantage on them and cover advancing troops. And while this isn't genius, you didn't want to put your favorite people on here. Because siege towers, due to being fat, slow pieces of shit, couldn't really Tokyo drift out of the way if your enemy decides they don't like that you've outclassed them in the phallic representation of your masculinity department and decide to take aim with a device that can launch a 90kg projectile over 300 meters directly into its face. Also, if someone has fire and the tower isn't sufficiently moist, They'll catch on fire, and suddenly the least of your problems is a fear of heights, or the word moist. And if all this doesn't work, well, I mean, you might just want to turn back, Chief. This is a pretty hard fucking castle. But if not, let's go with the good old ladders. Because when all else fails, just climb over it, forehead. And look, this sounds like it shouldn't be a big deal, right? I mean, because you've climbed a ladder before. But it's actually an exceptionally big deal. Imagine, if you will, climbing a hastily built wooden ladder. Now imagine climbing a hastily built wooden ladder 40 fucking feet in the air. Now imagine climbing a hastily built wooden ladder 40 fucking feet in the air while people are throwing shit at you, shaking the ladder, and trying to stab you. Oh, and also, if you're the first one up, not only are you dealing with that while your hands are busy, but you also, when you get to the top, need to push against the enemy enough for your buddies to come up after you and also establish a beachhead big enough for the ladder to be moderately safer to climb. Okay, and finally, we have disease and fire, because when all else fails, just fuck their shit up as much as possible. So by launching burning things and hoping it hits enough buildings to cause an issue, or tossing plague rats and dead people into family dinner, you'll do wonders for their morale and will cause them indiscriminate don't you mean Geneva's suggestions, damage. By making everyone sick or on fire, the defenders can't really fight back very well. Also poison their water supply. And if all of this makes it seem like, holy fuck, the attackers have this in the bag. Why are sieges so hard? Oh boy, do I have news for you. Let's talk about the defenders. So, the first thing is actually when you're building the structure. Geography and design. For a good defensive position, get your defenses somewhere high up and entirely dominate the area, which means taking up as much space as possible and covering the rest in your field of fire. For example, if you set your keep at the top of a hill, find a sweet spot to put the walls that forces your enemy to roll heavy and cumbersome siege weapons up a steep hill and build incredibly tall siege towers, but also gives you the shooting advantage because people behind the wall might be able to tell what they're shooting at and also denying the enemy any benefit of getting through the wall itself. And also designed the layout to make it hard, if not impossible, for siege weapons of any reasonable size to get either inside the city or through the gatehouse and 
give yourself plenty of routes to both bottleneck and spread your enemy thin. Like having narrow streets over a river with bridges that are easily removed and have a lot of them so your enemy wastes times figuring out which ones are safe to cross while you're busy making all of them not OSHA compliant. And now that you have that set up, now it's time to dig a pit. Moats, and also holes in the ground, but, you know, why not fill them with water if you have the chance, serve the very important role of keeping people from touching the walls. Now, primarily, regardless of size, they were meant to stop infantry armed with ladders and battering rams or shovels from getting too close. But the size changes some of its features. Small ones, being very shallow or narrow, were meant more to slow the enemy down uh, while you continue to shoot them. This would mean stuff like having to wade through ankle to knee-high muck or jump across a three to four pit of water about six feet deep. And both makes it real fucking hard to roll siege engines over, especially if you're also on top of a hill. Because now they need to ford the goddamn river of raw sewage, push the 750-pound battering ram up a 82-degree angle, hold the ram in place, and then swing-swung it at the door all while getting fired at. If you've ever tried to get into a San Francisco gay bar, you know how tiring that is. And that isn't even a battering ram, it's just your titanic hog. Now, bigger moats, being very deep or very wide, needed bridges or to be filled in to cross, which meant you had to stall your advance, bring over cats and seed shields, and shovel dirt into poop water for days or weeks to even get to the wall. And then, if you have siege equipment, pray to whatever form of god you believe in that your piddly little dirt walkway is strong enough to hold it. Now, I'm sure you're asking, William, why didn't they just swim through it? Well, I mean, first of all, don't question my shit. But also, as I've alluded to, most were not pristine spring water you'd accidentally see your surprisingly hot childhood friend turn warrior woman titties in. No, rather, most were usually standing water which meant mold, moss, mosquitoes, and bacteria galore. And oh boy, did they let that shit fester. But the thing is, is that environmentalism wasn't super popular at the time, and most shit would kind of just break down in nature anyways. So, what's a pretty convenient garbage dump if you live inside of a castle? Yep, the fucking moat. Which meant, in addition to being still water, it was also filled with piss, shit, vomit, probably cum, blood, and garbage. Meaning moats were usually stinky, nasty, thick in all the worst ways, disease-filled bogs that had a high likelihood of giving you cholera, hep A through Y, and leprosy just by dipping your tootsies into it. And that's without an open wound. And even if it was clear water or there wasn't garbage, you're wearing armor and carrying weapons. Have you ever uh, swam in denim before? Well, now imagine instead of denim, you're wearing a cotton jacket, half a foot thick, covered in metal plates, weighing in about 30 pounds while also wearing a two-pound sword, and getting fucking sniped by archers. But if you decide that you're dumb enough to go for a dip in Nurgle's cum dumpster, and no, I don't mean Isha, then you're swimming through thick, chunky, stinky, quote-unquote water, and if you manage to not drown in literal shit, you come up on the other side soaked to the bone in raw sewage that is never coming out of your soul. And good job, forehead. Now there's a big fucking stone wall. Okay, and moving on from moats, the defenders also have artillery, which we should mention uh, for the previous entry as well, but artillery was not meant to hit troop formations. Soldiers move way too fast to get accurate shots off, and it's not worth it. Even in the modern day, even though you can drop an anvil on a man's wiener while he pees from fucking orbit, only be a few millimeters off, that still isn't the point of artillery. The point is to turn a hard position into something easier than sweaty missionary by destroying defenses, scattering enemy soldiers as they run the fuck away from 90-kilogram projectiles, and draining the enemy's will to fight. Basically, you don't use artillery to kill. You use them to send harshly worded emails to the enemy commander that if they keep fucking up your yard, you're going to call the HOA on their ass. So next is if they actually reach your walls. 
And in this scenario, the easiest thing to do, besides keep firing, is to drop shit on them. Which is the point of murder holes and meticulations. Murder holes are holes in the floor of things like gatehouses, where defenders could drop or shoot things on people trying to bash open the door, and meticulations are small little gaps at the bottom of the walls used to drop things and shoot at people directly beneath it. And what would you drop? Oh, you know, nothing too crazy. Just rocks bigger than your head, lead weights, rabbit squirrels, buckets of human shit, dog piss, a shaken raccoon, snakes and bugs, pictures of their wife's pussy, dismembered limbs, scraps of wood, broken equipment, paper plates with suspicious stains, and hunks of clay. Oh, and you can also throw things like hot sand, boiling pitcher water, burning animal fat, hot salt, ashes, and really anything else that hurts like a motherfucker if you're especially cruel. And in addition to killing people, a lot of these options are more meant to get people off of ladders, away from battering rams, get them out of your walls, and also to disrupt them so it's harder to use siege engines. I mean, shit, have you ever uh, had to deal with a shaken raccoon? Okay, and the last one, because we've already talked about this, and it's kind of dumb to just basically repeat verbatim from there, is ironically redundancy. Like with engineering, it's a good idea to have layers to your defense that do the exact same thing. If possible, make your enemy get through multiple walls. If they bash it down, put together a barricade behind it while they clear the rubble. Make the paths to each wall harder to reach and get through. Make it a real pain in the ass every step of the way and force your enemy to continually use as many resources as possible to break through each line of defense. Because again, this isn't a video game. You don't have infinite resources. And also, just because you understand how to crack it open, it doesn't just happen when you press a button. Like, if you know this particular enemy's walls are real susceptible to undermining, that doesn't matter if they have four of them and they're all just as hard to get through. So, you know, the overall takeaway should be, holy fuck, sieges are brutal, difficult, savage, and oftentimes incredibly stressful for everyone involved. No one was having a good time, so when you write it, make it mean something and be scary. And uh, let's go to the history. Alright, and we start off in 3500 BC today. Because while it's theorized that city defenses were common, including walls of some sort before this, this is really what we have evidence for just like at the start. Specifically, people of the Indus River floodplains, also known as the Harapan, built siege defenses. And this ranged from street planning to full on fortresses. And why was this? Well, because at first, it's a bunch of cities tightly packed together without a ton of land to share, so obviously, stealing other people's cities is a pretty good success plan. And with that comes fortifications. But eventually, it became seen as a mark of privilege and power, not just in the Indus River floodplains, but across Mesopotamia. Because it demonstrated that not only is your city so valuable, motherfuckers are always trying to jack your shit, and you need a wall 30 feet tall and 4 feet tall, around the entire place, but it also shows that you're able to afford that kind of expense. You know, it's like buying a gold-plated AR-15 with the Superflex 4 grip approved by Johnny Sins himself, the red dot sight used on the gun that killed Osama bin Laden, toggling bump stock blessed by the Vatican itself, and a pearl-studded muzzle brake. It's not clear if the flex is that you can afford it, or that you're so wanted by everyone that you need it. And, you know, something to mention real fast is that it's theorized that the Trojan War took place somewhere within the 11th, 12th century BC. We're not even really sure that that happened in the first place. And this whole war was supposedly one very long siege. Something we do know is real is the Peloponnesian War, a war between Athens and Sparta that we talked about a bit on Waitat on the war episode. But this was essentially the First World War of Ancient Greece. And this war had 100 total sieges, with a reported 58 attacker victories, which is actually really impressive. Or, you know, sieges at the time really favored attackers. And for some notable sieges of the BCs, we have two performed by Alexander the Great, someone that supposedly 
never lost a battle, despite very clearly one of these stories including a 15 times shopping at Tolan Large L. In the 332 BC, Alexander besieges the island of Tyr, blockading the sea for seven months. But apparently, getting tired of not killing some people, Alexander started to build a goddamn bridge, which only made it halfway before the water got too deep. Not letting some... Not letting something like some splishy, splashy bullshit stop him, he then planted artillery at the end of the bridge and bombarded the fuck out of the city. And in a valiant effort, the city rallied some ships to intercept, which kamikazed into the bridge and sent it and the artillery straight to Davy Jones's octopusy. Seething at the massive fucking L and mauling about the length of this fucking siege, he ordered a full attack, which somehow worked, and he killed eight thousand prisoners of war out of spite and then sold 300,000 people into the slave trade, mostly women and children. Yeah, yeah, he's not a good dude. I mean, despite the amount of hero worship we give him in the West. Alright, and Alexander the Great is back at again at Krispy Kreme, and this time besieging Songdain Rock. And this time he captures it with a stealth attack, claiming the high ground, and unlike Anakin, the defenders of Songdain Rock became demoralized, and surrendered immediately. And these are both his most impressive sieges, since he built a bridge halfway out into the motherfucking ocean, and took a city with exceptionally low casualties on either side, and very quickly. And now let's talk about the Romans. So, for their day, the Romans were notable siege fighters, being masters of both attack and defense. And a large amount of this was their heavily armored, highly defensive, and disciplined form of warfare. And also because they loved to make their soldiers build shit. Roman legionnaires were exceptionally well trained to maintain themselves on campaign trails, or also used for public work projects. Meaning when it came time to besiege a city, they could very easily and quickly build ramps, siege towers, and heavy artillery, and also, by and large, provide for themselves especially compared to more skirmishing or individualistic armies like the Gauls or more traditional militaries like the Carthaginians. As defenders, they were masters of using their skills and equipment designed for tight ranks and you know, tight butts on narrow walkways and doorways and in cramped streets without much of an issue, which really must have twisted their tunics that they eventually lost. Speaking of which, after the collapse of Rome, Siege became a major factor in the Middle Ages, with castles and walled cities being the seats of power for feudalism, and the places where the highest and easiest to reach concentration of people lived. So it became the best way to quickly break your enemy's will to fight during a war, and also to get the most loot. Also, if you controlled their cities, then you gained access to all of the uh, geographical advantages that they had. During this era, some of the best siege fighters were the Muslims of the 1600s, particularly between 623 and 632 AD, when they were led by Muhammad. And they were great siege fighters, largely because they used it a lot and became used to that kind of fighting. And most particularly were the sieges of Banu... Oh, fuck. Quainuka and Banu Nadir with both of them being fought against the Jews, who themselves had some pretty powerful warriors, considering that they were still around after things since, like, the Hittites and ancient Egyptians, and also since the Romans and other massive military powers that are well-known for being dominant in their era. However, also, I will say, going through every single siege of the medieval era would be fucking ridiculous, and also turn this episode into an episode of Waitan Normie, so instead, let's talk about when sieges change. With the 13th century. With the proliferation of gunpowder, as cannons became more accessible and could crack walls, fortifications became heavier and more defensible and became a larger and larger investment until besieging forces essentially required cannons to take them. And this really changed siege warfare significantly and made a lot more of the focus into a range artillery duel rather than a wall rush. Since you blew the fuck out of the walls, then you'd essentially win the day. However, this didn't change the face of sieges as much as the 16th century. 
In the 16th century, the construction of fortresses massively changed. The designers began to use sharper angles to avoid direct collisions from cannonballs, increase wall depth, and things like rectangular towers and star-shaped fortresses to reduce the impact force of projectiles and funnel enemy troops into kill boxes more effective for gunpowder. And while most of these stayed around for a long time, they weren't often placed inside of or surrounding cities anymore and were instead usually built as their own standalone structures. That, and they were expensive as fuck to build. Because think, these are massive engineering feats covered head-to-toe in cannons, and people don't even generally live inside of them. And not too long after this, siege war begins to lose prominence as land and sea battles become the new hotness. Until the 1800s. Because as guns advance, and rapidly, and communications technology doesn't keep up, making the right commands to the right troops become harder, meaning that it's easier to communicate when you're bunched up. But you want to avoid cannons and artillery. So a lot of people discover, ah, fuck, if I stand behind some bricks, no one can shoot me. And ta-da, siege warfare again. And obviously, I'm not trying to say that sieges weren't happening otherwise, just that they weren't as prominent. And that honestly kind of ends our timeline, because over time, even as early as World War I, artillery and infantry weapons, alongside faster and faster methods of warfare, has made castles and dedicated hard-walled fortresses obsolete. Nowadays, we've moved on to essentially point defense, slowing the enemy down to keep them in threat range, and moving in to intercept with armor and artillery. So, with that quick little timeline, let's go over to why it matters. If you want to think about this like your average reader or artist, it ultimately doesn't. Because like last week, think of this as a tool in your tool belt. More realistic sieges are going to be brutal, and if you're writing or running in a high fantasy setting, They'll show off how grim this fight is to use a realistic battle. However, if you're running something like a grim dark fantasy war game, then realistic sieges are probably going to be the norm, or at the least more common, even if only with one faction. Because ultimately, you aren't going to offend anyone doing this in the fantasy way. At least not legitimately. Unless the person is psychotic or you really fuck something up. You know, like putting artillery outside of your walls, or... Uh, fighting away from the castle that you control. Fucking Game of Thrones. However, it is important to understand something about sieges that's different than with space battles. See, these actually happen. So it's important to understand and respect the human tragedy that comes with a siege. Because sure, it's fun to write or run for a game or to talk about, But if you're going to do something like a realistic siege justice or make sure you're eliminating the right elements to fit the story you're telling, it's important to understand that. Real people died. The level of terror, pain and misery, illness and disease, and random sudden violence and gruesome deaths, and yes, even sexual violence occurring due to, during, or in the aftermath of siege are all real things that happen. I'm saying this as both a dumb little leftist believing art needs to respect human experience, but also because it makes your writing better. Because the more you understand the tragedy, the more you understand what parts you can or should highlight in your own battles, and why it's important for it to be there while still treating the material with respect. And that's basically it, so let's talk about the application. And once again, like last week, it really depends on your tone. So if you want to write a high fantasy or something along the lines of, like, you know, one of my favorite series, Ranger's Apprentice, that is a lighter read but still has a lot of heavy themes, you can probably go more the route of a fantasy siege. A big daring push at the wall where eventually the heroes succeed. Or have it a backdrop, which is also particularly common. However, if you're putting this into a more hopeless setting, then it's better to use this tool to be something that reinforces the grim darkness or hopelessness. Sieges are, again, 
brutal and bloody, so it's going to be more useful to lean into the more realistic sides of a siege. And this is particularly useful when dealing with something like the final battle of your party, or the big climactic fight with the big bad of the story. Or again, if you just want to horrify your audience. And there's nothing stopping you from mixing these. Kind of like Warhammer Fantasy. Because there's a lot there that's kind of realistic with its sieges, but, but Warhammer Fantasy is also goofy as hell. So yeah, while this battle is a tragic end of a hero in one section of the siege, because the Clan Eshin assassins have undermined the wall, and are now charging directly your main character, who's trying to hold the wall against the orcs, scrambling up the wall towards them with body parts all over the place, and people desperately throwing treasure heirlooms and the dead at them. While in another part of the siege, it's a silly slapstick shit fit between a group of clan squire gunmen absolutely laying fire in the back of the Skaven formation because they're just silly little rats, while a pack of squigs bonk the formation of goblins around and a giant scratches his asshole with a flagpole. Now, sieges, because they're usually protracted conflicts with very high stakes, makes them perfect for a few things. Story-long conflicts, climactic battles, and resolution. And all three of these points of the siege answers questions about the story that would naturally come up. Why are the characters doing this if it's so fucking hard? Because they don't have any other choice. It's do or die time and you're sure as fuck not going to let them die yet. They haven't experienced enough character building tragedy yet. Or why is this happening? Like why a siege? Well, because this is the Dark Lord's last bastion or last attempt to snag the MacGuffin, and we need to stash it in this ancient Dark Lord, Dark Lord proof shield. Or maybe he's almost won, and if we can push his army back here, we have a base of power to save the day. But, you know, also with sieges, you need to be careful to treat it right. This can't just be a, oh, hey, a siege, when there's 20 pages left in the book. Sieges, in order to do them justice in whatever style, should be long. Because that was the truth of how they were. They were long, hard, and sucked. Very much like your uh, fanboy best friend, that while you've been uh, too much of a prude to give a poke, I've been going ham on your boy's dick. Got him. And like your fanboy best friend, don't make it a quick resolution. Really drag it out, because the entire point of making this a siege rather than a land battle is because sieges give you more time for drama. So build that fucking drama. The other thing you really should consider is the role of stuff like magic and flyers. Think about how the castle you've designed would reasonably be breached and run counters in the design until you hit something you want as a fatal flaw. But yeah, make sure it's a big and important deal and also, and also it's perfect uses as big moments. So let's go to the soapbox. Oh. Holy shit, do I love sieges. Not even gonna ask a rhetorical question this time. I fucking love them. Why? I mean, if I'm being honest, it's mostly nostalgia. I had some of those illustrated medieval history books as a kid, and I fucking loved those. But as I grew older, I was also obsessed with the Battle of Minas Tirith and Helm's Deep from the Lord of the Rings movies, and would watch those battles on repeat while making little siege maps with my own labels and shit all over them. And into my adulthood, while I haven't particularly done a ton of siege writing or work, every RPG campaign I've ever planned is filled with them, especially at the end of the game. This kind of warfare is incredibly fun to run in games, and in my experience, tends to be the most satisfying kind of resolution. Because there feels like there's actual hard objectives, and that those objectives mean something. And also, I mean, where are you going to go from there? But after doing this research, I find myself actually a bit more hesitant to use them. Not because I'm horrified, but because of the amount of fucking work I need to put into this to feel like I'm doing it justice anymore. So, you know, fuck me, right? Fucking effort complex. But ultimately, I'm kind of agnostic for other people using it if it's done right. But don't get me fucking started if it isn't. Siege is done poorly because of my history with them pisses me off. Especially with all the moving parts. Like, if you fuck up and do something like leave your fucking artillery outside, then you've basically lost the battle because if your enemy can get to the walls, they have your artillery. Fuck you, Game of Thrones. 
but you know what? Let's let's go home. And that's episode fifteen, and that ends the two part ish episodes on how to do unique types of battles that are usually relegated to sci-fi and fantasy respectively. And if you're mad I didn't cross-pollinate these episodes, remember, I can lead you to the toilet, but I can't wipe your ass. But anyways, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast feed, like it, leave a review, whatever else it is you can do on your platform of choice. Send me an email at waytapods at gmail.com. That's W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. With questions, concerns, opinions, compliments, insults, um, actuallys, the most horrific siege weapons you can imagine, challenges to come fuck up your eternal fortress, and anything else you want to tell me. Also follow me on Twitter at waytap underscore pods. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytap, where I talk about things that actually happen, that is usually more horrific than sieges. And with that, have a good night, have fun, keep writing. And remember, tip your engineers. Holy fuck, tip your engineers. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This Nerd Edition. I've been your host, William. Good night.